Now let's turn to the message. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. He shall crush your head. Uh, you'll have to excuse me, even though I have a weak voice, I'm going to get passionate and excited and probably uh, strain at times. If you don't like that, then uh, just forgive me. But this message to me is the most powerful Christmas message ever preached. Ever. It is the message of God to the generations that would come after Adam. And His Christmas message to all generations is this. He shall crush your head. Christmas is proclaimed. The grace of God is passed forward. When we contemplate the Christmas story, it's so common for us to spend all the season in Matthew and Luke as if that section is in exclusion or in, in, a, in a special category. It's the only place that Christ is spoke of as coming. Aaron mentioned this morning <coughs> in the Sunday school time that there are over 300 prophecies of Christ's coming in the Old Testament. 300. So the message of Christmas is ancient. And I'm going to show you today it's from the very beginning. It's from the very beginning. Genesis 3, 14 through 15. Let's look at that together. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat and all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Here it is. He shall, bru he shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall crush his heel or bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you enter the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. If that had been the end, if we took verse 15 out, and that dust to dust was the end, what a miserable life we would live. Dust to dust. He took you out of the ground. You'll return and biodegradable uh, tissue turns back into the, bio, uh, uh, the biogenetic makeup of the universe. And dust we are and dust we shall be. If that was the end, if that's all God said, we'd be miserable. But that's not all He said. Remember the key to this passage and the curse. In the middle of the curse against Satan, the serpent, the woman and the man, in the middle of the curse is the grace of God. He shall crush your head, the offer of grace. And then he follows it up. The man called his wife's name Eve, in verse 20, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The grace of God. Today I want us to look at three things from this passage. God's justice was offended. 
God's mercy and grace are displayed, God's victory is sure. The message of Christmas is, God's victory is certain. It is sure. Let's look at this passage. God's justice is offended. And we'll have to look back to the beginning of chapter 3, and we won't read it for time's sake. (coughs) But verses 1 through 7 describe for us the fall of man. Remember the dialogue between Eve and the serpent. The serpent comes and says, Did God really say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? And she says, Well, no, He just said we could eat from all these trees, but just not this one. Unless we die. He says, You won't surely die. Come on. God's the cosmic joy killer. God doesn't want you to have what you can have, lady. Wake up. God's stealing your joy. God's stealing your pride. God's taking what is rightfully yours. Eat from that tree. Eat it. Because in that day when you eat it, you'll be just like God. And that's what He knows. That's what He knows. He doesn't want you to be just like Him. So what did Eve do? She looked on the tree and saw that it was good for food, right? She took it and she ate from it. And then she took it and passed it to the third man or the third person in the conversation. I know he hadn't said anything, but Adam was standing there. Paul tells us that. The woman was deceived. Adam could have stopped the whole deal. But he wouldn't do it. He stood by passive, watching as his wife sinned, dishonored God. And then worse than that, she hands it to this man and he eats from the same fruit. He willfully disobeyed God. The Bible says clearly he was not deceived like the woman. He willfully sinned. He willfully chose the path of his wife and the serpent over the path of righteousness and God. He did it willfully. And so man offended God's justice. God had laid out the the lines of relationship with him from the very beginning. He placed them in the most unique creation in all the earth, the Garden of Eden, the most beautiful, the most plentiful, the most heaven-like of all the places on the earth. God put them in the center of it. And He protected them. He surrounded them. He hedged them in. And He gave them very few instructions. What were they? Be fruitful and multiply. And what was the other one? Don't eat from this tree. From all the other trees you can eat. But don't eat from this one tree. Simple life. Life was simple. Enjoy the garden, Adam. Enjoy your wife and multiply. Don't eat from this tree. If you eat it, you will die. And in that word, God established the blessings and the curse of the covenant of life. The covenant of life. The covenant of works, we might call it. The covenant of life was simple. Remember that. Adam was innocent. Eve was innocent. They were living in a perfect, innocent place. No sin, no corruption, and a walk with God that was intimate and personal. 
And yet at this moment in in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam threw all of that away so that he could please his wife and satisfy his hunger of pride and satisfy his hunger to be the man, to be number one, to be God. Self-rule was his desire. So he offended God. Notice that God and Satan are already adversaries in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. They're already against each other. Okay? And this roots back to when Satan tried to overthrow God and throw Him out of heaven. God cast Him down, we're told. And He dwelt on the earth. (coughs) And He put Himself in a deceptive way into an animal. He placed Himself into this serpent. Now, some have wrongly understood this to be some small copperhead or, you know, small poisonous snake or something. It's my belief from the Scripture that because he calls them the cattle of the field, this is a giant animal. This is no small little animal. I believe him to be the most beautiful of all the animals. The most intelligent. Hear the words cunning. He was cunning above all the other animals. I believe he was the wisest. I also believe he often talked to the humans. This animal, whatever it was, before it was possessed by Satan, carried on conversations with Eve and Adam. Why? What if an animal you never had seen talking, what if your dog, when you got home today, walked up and said, hey, how was church? What's for dinner? You'd pass out. You'd run away. You'd shoot the dog. You'd do something. Right? Was Eve startled when this animal came up and spoke? Was it anything that was out of the ordinary to her when I told that? She's not surprised the animal talks to her. She talks to the animal. I mean, how crazy is that? If you went home, if David went home, went to feed his coon dogs, and, and Jessica and Elizabeth went out later and He's carrying on a conversation and the dog sounds like he's barking to them and he talks back. They'd have him admitted today without delay, I hope. For my safety, I live next door. I mean, it's not normal for us, but it must have been for Eve because she was not shocked. And this would have been a dead giveaway that something odd was happening. And the Bible says Eve was totally deceived, had no clue what was going on. So here's this beautiful, brilliant animal the size of at least a cow. Walks up to her as she's standing in the garden and tempts her with the fruit, the forbidden fruit. Satan is opposed to God from the beginning. Satan deceived man through the woman. Woman was was deceived, but man was willfully rebellious. Willful men... We have no excuse. Adam had no excuse for his sin, except that he listened to his wife instead of God. It's a whole nother message. Whole nother bag of tricks. Whole nother thing to meddle in. We won't get there today. But he listened to his wife instead of God. Listen to her. She was deceived and he was rebellious, and guilt and shame fell on them. Look in verse seven. Then the eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincalls. Their innocence is lost. They were ruined. They were naked. 
They were ashamed. God and his relationship with them was now in justice. He was offended by their actions. Paul describes the fall for us, and I've placed it on the screen in Romans 5, 12 through 17. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And I've mentioned this before. But we have the system. Paul says, in Adam we all sin, and his sin was imputed to us, as we said last week. And in Christ, if you are in Christ, you have the forgiveness of sins through his imputed righteousness. How did sin enter the world? Adam willfully rebelled, and he brought a curse on us that only has one remedy, and that is Jesus Christ. And that is the message of Christmas. We need a Savior. Listen, you need a Savior today. You don't need a doctor. You don't need to be a better person. You don't need to come to grips with yourself and who you are and who the people around you are and how bad this world is. You need somebody, one somebody, who can reach into your life and rebirth you into a new man and give you life and make you alive forevermore. You and I need a Savior. That's the message of Christmas. Above everything else, that God was offended in the garden and yet He gave grace. He was offended and yet He gave grace. So the sin entered the world through Adam. And what's the result of the sin? Romans 3, 9 through 20 make it clear. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's the result. No one's righteous. No one's innocent. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. <clears throat> their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The result of sin 
It came through Adam, and the result is we're all unrighteous. All of us. Every man. And we all hate God. This myth that floats around in our presence today that people are looking for God is nothing but a fabrication. People are not looking for God. People are looking to be God. People are looking to solve their own problems. People are looking for a quick fix, a self-help. They're not looking for a Savior. They have no desire for righteousness. Their desire is continually evil, continually lying, continually murder, continually blasphemous, continually railing against God in their flesh and shaking their fist as Cain did before God. When God is holding out His hands to them in mercy and saying, all the day long I've held out my hands to a bitter and rebellious people and yet you would not come to me. What is He saying? He's saying, I offer mercy and yet you slap at my hand and spit in my face and say, I'll be my own God. I don't want you and I don't need your Savior. That's the focus of the world. Not looking for God. Looking for a solution in themselves. I challenge you. Turn on any talk show in America. Pick up any top 100 book on the New York Times bestseller list. And they will be full of anthropology. The study of men and how you can make yourself perfect. And how you can be a success. And how you can set yourself free. And how all you need is a little help. And all you need to do is look within. You will find nowhere, except at the top, by the way, a book that preaches the truth. And the reason I say at the top is, annually, the top-selling book in all the world is the Bible. Now, we all know it's bought and thrown on shelves and on coffee tables and used as a coaster and everything else. But it alone preaches the truth. And that is you offended God and you are unrighteous and you are dying and you are in need of not help but a Savior. And we see the result of that sin and we see the ultimate punishment of that sin in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So man fell and offended God's justice. (coughs) God's mercy and grace go on display. From the very beginning, look in Genesis 3, 8 through 21. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. God confronts man in his sin. We have butchered a verse in the Bible that says God's too holy to look on unrighteousness. We've butchered it to the point that we make it sound as if God cannot see us in our sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. God saw you in your sin. And like He came after Adam... He came after you. He came after you. You, like Adam, were hiding. Hiding in your success. Hiding in your family. Hiding in a church. 
hiding in your self-righteousness, your morality, whatever you were hiding in, you had fashioned your uh, righteous robes of your own making, your righteous robes of your own making, your fig leaf, your tunic, and you thought, I'm hidden from God. His eyes are too holy to look at me. I'm making my own way. I'm blazing my own trail. And God, in mercy and grace, found you. You did not find God. He came to you. And He said, where are you? In that, He's not asking for location. He's asking for position. Where do you stand, Adam? Today. What's different today from yesterday? Why are you hiding? Why are you wearing these clothes? What is your position, Adam? Where do you stand before me? And what does Adam say? I'm naked. Like Isaiah. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm totally undone. Like Zechariah the priest, who had the vision of the most holy temple and actually relieved himself on his priestly garments. And he said, my life is like these garments. When he saw the holiness of God, it scared him to death. And he was hiding in his priestly garments. And what God does is washes him clean. Pours the water of purification over him. He says, I know you're a sinner. I see your sin. And I choose to offer you mercy and grace. You've offended my justice. You've spit in my face. You've slapped my hand. You've rejected me. And I'm offering you mercy. And I'm giving you grace. That's the power of the Christmas message. That's what we read about in the New Testament. That's been unfolded from the very beginning. Man immediately begins to shift blame. Well, Lord, I know I'm in naked, but I ate ate of the fruit of the tree, (coughs) but it was because of the woman. Women, that's a classic man statement, isn't it? Something goes wrong, it's my wife's fault. Why are we late? It's my wife's fault. Why is the car a mess? It's my wife's fault. We've been doing it since the beginning. Why are the kids out of control? My wife doesn't do a good job. She ought to get with it. Why, aren't, why am my suit ready and pressed? Because my wife didn't do it. Why am my food ready to eat? My wife didn't do it. Everything's the wife's fault. Don't, don't feel bad, ladies. It started with Adam and Eve. It ain't going to change. That's our flesh coming out. We like to pass the buck, push the blame, give it to somebody else. And so, here we are. God confronts Adam. He shifts the blame. God's not buying it. He punishes Adam. Punishes him in verses 13 through 19. But I want you to see that punishment, think of this, the curse is a picture of grace. Bet you never thought about it that way. <clears throat> the punishment of God for Adam's sin is grace. Why? Because God had the right to destroy him. He didn't have to curse him. All he had to say is, be done. No more. Dust to dust. No hope. Ichabod. He could have done it in a myriad of ways. And he could have evaporated Adam and Eve right there. But what does he do? He curses them. 
He shows His grace. He gives His mercy. He gives them mercy in that He doesn't give them what they deserve. What they deserve is to be evaporated, to be dead, to be gone, to be crushed. And He offers them grace in the phrase, He shall crush your head. And I want to spend the last part here talking about that. He shows us mercy in 13 through 19. When He says to the serpent, you're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat your food covered in dust. You're going to be hated by mankind. Look, I can't speak this as biblical truth. And if some of you love snakes, it's just a broad statement, okay? As I was studying this, I thought, you know, it's true. Anybody who loves snakes is a freak. As soon as I say that, there'll be eight people come to me and say, I own a snake. I'm not saying you're going to hell if you like snakes. What I am saying is, as a general rule through the life of mankind, snakes have not bowed well in this thing, okay? And if they have survived, they have struck a blow against mankind wherever they can. And no animal, maybe no animal, strikes fear like a snake. I mean, have you ever thought about it? A snake is helpless, really. It has no legs. It's not all that fast, really. Although for a slow white farm kid, a rat snake can get after you, you know. But, I mean, a snake I mean, a snake is little. It's on its belly. It has a little mouth. It, it's, it's, it looks harmless, really. Right? But yet, you put a snake out here and a dog, you can put a Rottweiler out here. More people are scared of the snake than they are the dog. There's a, there's a hatred between man and snakes. I, and, it, and it has to come from this curse. You know, I always back up and go over them four or five times in a row. <laughs> Get out and cut the head off. I make sure the deal is done. Okay? I'll go up to a horse, a dog, a cat. I, I'm not scared of any other animals. I'll catch a rat with my hand. That's no problem. Put a snake in the same room, somebody's dying. Him or me. <laughs> There's a hatred there. The hatred there, okay? And you say, well, poor snake. It's not his fault. The only thing I can say is, who are you, old man? To speak against the potter. What he does with his vessels, he does with his vessels. If he chooses to do this with a snake, it's his choice. He made it, and He could use it however He wills to use it. It's not unfair. He's a pot. He's a creation. Careful with that kind of logic. Because if you agree with me in the snake, you've got to agree with me with the man. And you say, who are you, old man, to reply against the potter when he makes one for righteousness and one for his own wrath? God's the potter. He does whatever He wills with His creation. And whatever brings Him the glory, He does it. And so there's this curse against the snake. There's a curse against the woman. Multiplies pain in their childbearing. (coughs) And He curses the man. You're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. You're going to bring forth bread. And listen, on top of that, your natural inclination is to be lazy and lay on the couch and do nothing. Not only that, but you're going to have to lead your wife who's headstrong and wants to be the boss, but you've got to be the boss, man. That's the curse. 
Unless some of you people foolishly believe that that desire over your husband is some sexual comment, and you haven't been married very long if you believe that, the desire the woman has for the man is to rule him. We see that with the follow-up phrase. Your desire shall be for him, but he shall what? Rule over you. See, the woman, think about it. Think of your home. The curse is played out. It's real. It's applicable to you and me. Go home this afternoon. Most women will be up, scurrying around, cleaning the house, cooking dinner, taking care of the babies, wanting to go do some project. What's the man want to do? Sit down and watch football. Why? Because the woman has this desire in her from the curse to rule and reign and take dominion and do all the things the man's supposed to be doing. And what does the man want to do? He wants to be a no good. He wants to be lazy. He wants to sit around. You know, it doesn't surprise me to see that the world today is flip-flopping roles and men are staying home even without kids and women are going to work. That doesn't surprise me. that's That's what we want to do. Think of it. Saturday morning comes, what do you want to do, men? If I could just get them out of here by 11 o'clock, kick off, sit down, take it easy. Your wife goes off for the weekend. (laughs) Your wife goes off for the weekend. What do we do? Now, if if we leave our wives clean every day, what do we do? Trash the place for a week. An hour before she's due home, we're running around. Oh, no, she's going to get me. I got to put this stuff. It's, it's, It's the curse. It's the curse, and it comes out, and it's true. The snake, just like the snake crawls on his belly, the woman has pain in childbirth and desires to have dominion that she can't have. And what's about the man? He's got to go work and labor and sweat and toil and hate it. And when his only desire is to sit down and be lazy, he's got to lead his wife when his only desire is to let her do it. He's got to stand up and say, no, we can't do that. We must do this. Because it's the will of God when his natural desires say, okay, honey, whatever you say. That's the curse coming out in all of us. <clears throat> but God's victory is sure. <clears throat> God's victory is sure and He seals it with His sacrifice right here in verse 21. He killed an animal and He clothed them Himself in righteousness and, he's, and He has perpetuated that covenant all the way through. And I want to close with this section. Verse 15, the crux of the statement. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall crush his heel. God has placed enmity between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of righteousness. Who are the offspring of Satan? All those who are lost. John 8, 44. Look at the screen. Jesus says, To the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says the Pharisees are of their father. Who's their father? The devil. They are the offspring of the serpent. They are the offspring of Satan himself. And there's enmity between them and Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, so that we don't just cast aspersion on the Pharisees. Look what Paul says. And you were, and you, speaking to everybody in Ephesus, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all the offspring at one time of Satan. All of us were the enemies of God. But now some of us, those who believe, have become the offspring of the righteous, the offspring of Christ. Look at Matthew 13, 37 through 40. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the children of the kingdom. There it is, the children of the righteous. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 3. He says, you, are the, you Pharisees are the sons of your father, the devil. The enmity that is between you and my followers is from the beginning. They are children of the kingdom. You are children of wrath. It's beautiful the way this thing plays out. 1 John 3, 8 through 12. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. You see it? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Victory is sure. The reason He came was that He might destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in Him. There it is. The seed of the righteous. Genesis 3 played out all the way through mankind. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. The beginning. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. See the reference of John? He doesn't go back to Jesus' ministry. Where does he go? Back to Genesis chapter 3 and 4. That's where he goes when he's talking about the seed of the devil and the seed of the righteous one. And he says it's played out, not just in us, but it was played out in Cain and Abel. Cain was the seed of Satan. And Abel was the seed of God, the righteousness of God. And the the enmity, the hatred played out real in their life. Why? Cain killed Abel. And so it looks like God's defeated. But then we have the beautiful Genesis 5 statement, right? And God had favor on Adam again, and He gave him a son, Seth. And Seth fulfilled the promise of the righteous seed. He brought forth all of the righteous ones who were there in the days of Noah, who were contaminated by uh, the angel, the wickedness of the angels, the demons. And so we have this picture played out all the way through Scripture. God has placed enmity between Satan and Himself, between Satan's offspring and His offspring. God has promised the utter defeat of Satan and His followers. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. God has set up that Satan shall be defeated. Now, I want to take you in Genesis 3. Here it is. It looks like God is defeated. His innocent creation is gone. Satan has gained power through the deception of a woman and the rebelliousness of a man. He has gained power over the whole world. He is the Lord of this world. He is the prince of the power of air. He seems to have won the fight. It's over, right? No. He shall crush your head. He shall crush your head. And so what we see for the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of that promise. It's the unfolding. It's the building blocks that build on top that point to the Christmas message, which is Christ. And so we see it start there. And we see it played out in Cain and Abel. We see it played out in Esau and Jacob. We see it played out all the way through the Scripture. Joseph and his brothers, all of them, either seed of Satan or seed of the righteous one. 
The battle is waging. Satan is fighting fiercely to win the war. In Matthew 4, Jesus, the ultimate seed of the woman, goes through the, to the, through the temptation of Satan, the ultimate one that would be crushed. And what did they do? They back and forth for power. That's what it is. It's a play for power. Satan tries to get him to sin three times, and he fails every time. The last time is an offer of what? The kingdoms of the earth. He's the power of the prince of air. He is the power of this world at this present age. And he offers it to Jesus. Here it is. You can have it. Just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The war is raging. He selects his twelve, and one of them is a devil, a son of destruction from the beginning. At the upper room, when they're sitting at the table, there they are. And I must think that back at the beginning of his life, there was a power play. Think of the power play made on Jesus' life from the very beginning. The enmity is real. I want to show it to you. What happened? The kings came from the east. They said there's a king of the Jews born. Herod says, come back and tell me where he is. I want to worship too. And what does he do? He sends his henchmen into Bethlehem to kill every child to and under. What was that? Uh, That wasn't a play of Herod. He's just a pawn in this war. That's all he was. That was a play from Satan to destroy the promised seed that would crush his head. And so then the duel in the desert. And then we come to the upper room and Jesus stares Judas and Satan in the face and says, go quickly and do what you've been commanded to do. And the last play Satan makes over Christ is on the cross. And it's almost in Scripture as if when that last breath is drawn, Satan roars as a lion. I have won. It is finished. I am the winner. I am the victor. And at that moment, his head was crushed by God. And the seed of the woman rose victorious over him and death and the grave. And he brought us life. And that is the message of Christmas. Let's don't stop at some manger scene, bowing down for some, before some humble child as if that's all Christmas is. Christmas is the message of Genesis chapter 3. He shall crush your head. And how will He do it? He'll be born as a baby. He'll be raised up in Nazareth. He'll be a perfect and sinless one. He will crush Satan on the cross. And He will lead the captives free. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. The Bible repeats this over and over. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. I want to close with these pictures quickly. Revelation 12. I want to show you. His victory is sure. It is complete. Revelation 12, 1 through 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven. This is John. A woman clothed <coughs> a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is the description of Satan at war with God, sweeping down a third of the host of heaven immediately, taking them down to the earth and making them his pawns. And this is a picture of the Lord being born, the promise being born. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accursor of our brother has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God? And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given to the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of a woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimonies of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So we have this picture of this war that is raising between the serpent and his offspring and God and his offspring Christ and those who are the offspring of Jesus through faith. And it rages today. And we are part of the one who is being prepared, who is being kept safe, who is being protected in this time of trial. And no matter how bad it is, God is the victor. His his, his victory is sure. Finally, Revelation 21-10 through 10 tells us how it ends. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. 
They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain to the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. His victory is sure. I want you to realize this. Those are long passages. Those are difficult passages. But they're simple. Don't complicate them. Don't get caught up in all the pageantry of John and the imagery he writes about. Understand this. The description of those two passages is in Genesis chapter 3. It's there. The war is consummated and ended. It's finished. Some of us are waiting around for some signs to be fulfilled or some length of time to pass or something. Look, all Revelation is saying, John is saying, everything that's been written beforehand that had to be completed is completed. And now we wait on Christ to come. That's it. He's the last cog. He's the last one. And He is coming and He is victorious and He has defeated Satan and He has defeated those powers of the air and He has defeated those who are unrighteous who rage against His people. And justice has been served and grace has been given and eternity waits. We're not waiting for some other sign, some other event, some other occasion. The cosmic war was fought before anything began. And now it's being played out, step by step. What does Christmas have to do with that? Christmas was not an afterthought of God. Man fell, God had to fix it. What I read to you in Revelation is a picture from heaven of what all time is. And it is as if it's already done. And I would say it was done before Genesis began. All of what John saw was done before God said in the beginning and created the earth. It's all finished. The victory is sure. Satan is no more than a player in the play. And he serves God even as he rails and hates him. You are part of the play. Either as his child or God's child. You are part of the play. And the message of Christmas is that Christ is a part of that play. God in the flesh, dwelling with us, delivering us from sin and death. The message of Christmas is the same from Genesis to Revelation. Don't wait. There's nothing to wait for. If you're here today and you say, I am a child of unrighteousness. I am a child of Satan. I am rebelling against God. Don't wait. There's nothing to wait for. 
There's nothing left to be fulfilled. It is finished. Believe in Christ and be saved. Believe in Him and be saved. If you're here and you're saved, don't sit back and wait for some seven years, followed by another seven years and all of that. We are laboring today. The kingdom has come and we are ushering in the age of eternity even as we speak. He is winning. He is victorious. He is, his power is get, growing across the face of the earth. And you have a privilege to be a part of that. And Christmas offers us a great opportunity. And this is that opportunity. Though the world is not seeking God, God is in their face at this time of year. Christmas trees and manger scenes. Take the opportunity. Share the gospel. Be a soldier. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we painted with broad strokes over us.